You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. In today's feature report, we have Disabulletin, a segment highlighting disability news across the country and around the world on WFHB Local News. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fun. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Justice Fiscal Advisory Committee met on July 10th. The committee began with a discussion of the last meeting's topic, reentry and support programs for incarcerated individuals. So in the meeting, our last meeting, chaired by uh, Councilmember Wiltz, we heard uh, that we should be funding existing community teams doing reentry work in lieu of creating a Monroe County government team. We uh, outlined a couple of different funding options to create a justice non-reverting fund, uh, uh, Sophia Travis and some others. Of course, these are not mutually exclusive, nor are they exhaustive. So if other options come online, we can uh, discuss those. We also heard from you all that uh, we wanted to implement the Integrated Reentry and Correctional Support Program in Monroe County. Uh, Commissioner Githens, who is here at the table today, has been leading that effort to liaise with Indiana FSSA uh, on that program. And so that was one of the recommendations we heard. Um, The third recommendation that we heard was uh, to look at the Eve Hill recommendations, whether that's reentry planning, case management, and programming, whether that's funding a case management position in the jail, whether that's funding supports for families and peer supports, or funding for housing, Can you scroll down, Ms. Mosier? Thank you. Um, Or funding supporting employment. Um, All of those we feel um, can either be implemented on their own or at the very first bullet point where we're working with community teams that are already doing that work. So those those are that's kind of what uh, we heard. We also um, heard that we should fund the creation and operational support for a forensic assertive community treatment team. Again, this is part of the Eve Hill recommendations, and you can see more information about what FACT is there, as well as a link to the SAMHSA site, which gives that description. That's really the source code. We also heard that we needed to reduce silos and duplication of services when it comes to reentry. So we heard that the health department and Purdue University Extension are working together on a service mapping project. And we also um, heard that um, when we visited uh, a jail over in Ohio, that the commissioners there created a commissioner level office of justice policy and programs. um, And they were in charge of initiatives, uh, particularly involving grants, which is something that I think uh, we are desirous of in terms of a funding mechanism. The committee's topic of discussion this week was community corrections. 
This includes investments the county council can make to reduce re-entry of previously incarcerated people back into the prison system. The mission of the Monroe County Circuit Court Probation Department is to promote a safer community by intervening in the lives of offenders, holding them accountable, and serving as a catalyst for positive change. And the way they do that is by dividing up the department into seven divisions. In the first division, we have our pretrial services program, and this is really in influential in terms of making sure that we are uh, making prompt and equitable decisions for all dependents, uh, defendants, regardless of their ability to pay fees or monetary bonds, excuse me. We have our juvenile dis division, which addresses issues with those under the age of 18, and our adult division, which addresses issues for those over the age of 18. And you can see here that it service, serves about 2,000 Monroe County residents a year, adult offenders a year. Our problem-solving courts are absolutely phenomenal. This is one of the things that makes our community really amazing and has been for decades. Uh, I encourage you to go to co.monroe.in.us slash justice and find out more about these problem-solving courts. Um, th these are really looking at those criminogenic risk factors and trying through supervision and treatment to solve some of these recidivism issues. We have community corrections, which uh, the distinction here is that community corrections deals with home detention, day reporting, and work release. We also have our court alcohol and drug program, which deals with individuals who are convicted of alcohol and drug-related offenses. And finally, we have one of the jewels in the Monroe County hat, JDAI, or Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiatives. This is a program by the Annie E. Casey Foundation and it uh, allows us to make sure that as juveniles come into the system, that uh, we are doing everything we can to provide alternatives to detention for each and every one of those youth. The committee heard from the Director of Housing Security for Heading Home, Mary Morgan. Heading Home is an organization in South Central Indiana that works to decrease homelessness and strengthen housing security. Heading Home is not a direct service provider. We were created um, kind of to be a backbone organization for this region. So the region is not just Monroe County, um, although many of the services, probably most of the services are concentrated here. The region includes uh, Monroe, Morgan, Owen, Lawrence, Green, and Martin counties, because we feel strongly that all of these issues related to housing and homelessness are not just uh, for our own community, but there's a regional um, aspect to it that we believe needs to be addressed, which makes things a little more challenging, but is, is super important. Um, so we were created to address some systemic needs and to identify gaps in services, um, to bring groups, uh, organizations, and individuals together in a collaborative problem-solving approach. And so we've um, spent a lot of time in the past year and a half building those relationships and trying to um, identify the gaps. Um, the, the two overarching needs that we see um, are housing, obviously, in this market um, for really uh, any income level, but more acutely for low-income residents. And particularly, and I'm sure you have discussed this before, um, People who are formerly incarcerated have additional barriers 
to getting housing. Um, it's increasingly common for apartment complexes and property managers to do background checks and um, won't even consider many times um, applicants that have any kind of um, felony or any criminal history uh, on their record. So right out of the gate, even though our societies are built on the you know, premise of you've served your time, you've paid your debt to society, and now you're back and integrated into society, um, we all know that that's just not the case. And so, uh, and again, I defer to New Leaf, New Life. You've seen this um, up close in trying to find um, housing for, for the people that you work with. And so um, I think that's going to require a lot of work with landlords, um, incentivizing landlords, building relationships. Um, one of Heading Home's projects that we're embarking on is to do that. Um, we provided support to expand the um, Bloomington Housing Authority's Landlord Risk Mitigation Fund. It's a program that basically provides a kind of insurance policy for um, for landlords who agree to accept residents uh, that have vouchers and maybe have a background that wouldn't normally um, be accepted in their uh, apartments. Um, we have uh, funded this so that it doesn't just, um, is not a program just for the city of Bloomington, but can be applied to residents outside of the city limits within Monroe County. So we think that's one um, recent program, but we think it has a lot of potential um, for opening doors. It has a tenant education component as well. So um, it's, a, it's a great program that we're happy to support. Um, so there are some things to do with the housing piece, but honestly, I think that the, the other real need is um, for people. And um, people who are walking beside uh, those who have been previously incarcerated, um, I have not talked to any organization that has case managers or outreach workers or other staff that feels like they have the capacity to do what they really need to do. Um, and that includes probation, by the way. <laughs> uh, the caseloads that um, most of the people who are on the front lines have is, is daunting. Uh, I assume you've talked to some of these folks or you've, or you've heard about this, but... Um, it's really hard to provide the navigation and support that's needed when you have uh, 40 people on your list or whatever the number may be, um, and each with a unique individual problem. Um, so I think that that's, that's something that we need to grapple with as a region. Um, I think that there are some ways that we can be creative about that, but um, in terms of like trying to enlist volunteer support. And I've talked with some of you about um, increasing the number of um, support networks that are volunteers for some, some folks who um, maybe don't have their own individual support networks. I mean, we all do if we're privileged enough to have um, people that we can call on, but not everybody does. And that's such an important thing. If you hit a, a problem um, to know that you have somebody you can call. Um, who has the time to um, spend and problem-solve problem with you. Heading home advised the committee on the challenges associated with housing previously incarcerated people. The program is working to create stronger relationships with local landlords and to encourage housing for these individuals. I think we're going to have to turn more and more to the locally owned, maybe smaller landlords who we can build that relationship with and then provide ways to support them and, and hear them 
Um, uh, one of the things that we're hoping to do is to create a roundtable of landlords that can meet regularly and then just discuss some of the issues that they confront and figure out, well, how can we address that? Even as simple as having somebody or some hotline to call if there's an issue um, rather than turn to eviction immediately. Um, so I, I, I think that that's a really powerful story and thanks, thanks for sharing that. Committee member Jennifer Crossley shared her support for building relationships with these local landlords that encourage more stable housing for previously incarcerated people. You mentioned that you were hoping that there'd be a court-ordered psychiatric care program, and I hear that in a couple different ways. I was wondering, when you say that, what do you envision, what would you hope that that would look, for, look like? So again, um, I am uh, not an expert in this field, but I do um, hear from the folks that are that there needs to be an alternative to incarceration for people who are experiencing mental health issues and that it, it um, I guess the um, best practices would be that it would not be receiving treatment in jail, but it, it would be receiving treatment at a facility to address their issues rather than being incarcerated. So if it is, um, I'd be happy to explore that a little bit further. Um, again, this was just a, I was trying to tap the brain power of the people that I know are in direct services and, and um, understand these issues better than I do, but I'd be happy to follow up with you on that. Thank you, and I appreciate you uh, sharing all the information you had as of well. Of course, thank you. Well, and I'm I'm happy just to in, include as far as um, you know looking at uh, an alternative because I think Mary kind of what you were referencing is with um, substance residential treatment you know there is a 28 day option but if you're a person who has a you know psychiatric emergency oftentimes you know you might be able to to be hospitalized at IU Health or you might be able to go to Meadows or something but it's typically just for a matter of days and there's really not an equivalent um, for mental health, you know, a longer term uh, mental health treatment. And part of that is there's just, there's not a payment point for it. Um, that is definitely something that, you know, we're, we're talking about. And then there's some short-term uh, crisis funds and resources, but in terms of looking at something that is an equivalent longer term, they're, they're really, that is a hole and there's, there's a big hole in funding as far as that's concerned as well. So just wanted to mention that. Well, that's a good point. You know, we've also heard from uh, Sheriff Marte that there's a, a good number of folks that are in uh, uh, the Monroe County Jail at any given time that are suffering with uh, mental or, or behavioral health issues. So uh, we know that this is this is definitely an issue. And it's so much so that one of our future sessions is going to be devoted entirely to treatment. Uh, we're just going to spend the entire time uh, just talking about treatment options and I I really appreciate your perspective on it and, and your insightful questions. The JFAC will meet again on Monday, July 31st, 2023 at 4.30 p.m. In today's feature report, we have Disabilitant a segment highlighting disability news across the country and around the world on the WFHB Local News, hosted by Abe Shapiro. 
we turn to Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. We're back with Disabulletin following a brief research sabbatical concerning upcoming installments for our program. With the Supreme Court's docket now empty, until the first Monday of October, we reviewed two significant cases which came before the court in this last year. In these cases, the disability community asked the court critical questions regarding nursing home civil rights and special education civil rights, respectively. The first case came out of our very own state of Indiana this last November. It concerned the late Georgie Tulevsky, a then-resident at the Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation Facility. Georgie Tulevsky's family sued the facility's operators, the Marion County Health and Hospital Corporation, or HHC, under Section 1983 of the U.S. Code, as well as the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, or FINRA, of 1987. In the Supreme Court arguments held on November 8th of last year, the Tulevsky family argued they had the grounds to sue, as their late relative was allegedly the victim of civil rights violations, which included over-medication and involuntary transfer to a different nursing home located hours away from the Tulevsky's family home. The question in this case was whether or not those benefiting under programs receiving federal Medicaid funds, such as government-run nursing homes, could sue such programs if their civil rights were violated. On the opposite side, Marion HHC contested the case on the grounds that the statute in the U.S. Code, known as Section 1983, did not confer such a right to sue when first enacted in the 19th century, its original purpose being to protect former slaves from further discrimination by the southern states. Marion HHC also argued that even if a section of a law secures rights, HHC could defeat the lawsuit by arguing Congress, quote, did not intend that Section 1983 lawsuits be available under such rights, end quote. Although the rights statute of the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act mentions nothing about Congress intending to allow for civil rights lawsuits, it does create an administrative scheme, quote, for inspections of nursing home facilities and authorizes governments to sanction and correct non-compliant facilities, end quote. Therefore, there was no incompatibility present between the administrative scheme of FINRA and Section 1983 lawsuits. On June 8th of this year, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 that, quote, the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, or FINRA, provisions at issue unambiguously create Section 1983 enforceable rights. And this court discerns no incompatibility between private enforcement under Section 1983 and the remedial scheme that Congress devised under FINRA, end quote. In other words, the court ruled that those receiving the benefits of Medicaid programs do in fact have the right, or in legalese, a right of action, to seek compensation through the courts. In the majority opinion, Justice Kachanji Brown Jackson wrote, quote, At oral argument, HHC's counsel remarked that the right question is, what rights are secured by law within the meaning of Section 1983? Section 1983 itself provides the answer. By its terms, Section 1983 is available to enforce every right that Congress validly and unambiguously creates. We will not now impose a categorical font of power condition that the Reconstruction Congress did not when it passed Section 1983." Justice Jackson said that the manner in which Section 1983 is applied does allow for a private right for nursing home residents to sue if their rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act are violated as Marion HHC's medical team violated both provisions by transferring Tulevsky and giving him psychotropic medication against his will. Tulevsky's rights were therefore violated, thus creating a cause of action to sue. 
Justice Amy Comey Barrett concurred with Jackson in the majority in that the FINRA satisfied a test set in Gonzaga v. Doe 2002, wherein Congress must have had the intention to, quote, create rights for the intended beneficiaries, unquote. Justice Barrett also said the FINRA satisfied the test because the law contained a rights statute for nursing home residents. However, Justice Comey Barrett said normally such Section 1983 actions are the exception and not the rule for violations of spending clause statutes. This is because, quote, the typical remedy for state noncompliance with federally imposed conditions is not a private cause of action for the noncompliance, but rather action by the federal government to terminate funds to the state, end quote. So essentially, Justice Amy Comey Barrett was saying that lawsuits typically cannot be filed under Section 1983. Instead, the federal government will resort to terminating public funds to the state, which had allegedly violated the individual's civil rights. On the dissenting side, Justice Clarence Thomas contended that throughout American history, such spending clause statutes by the Congress were primarily viewed as a contract rather than as laws between the state and federal government. Thomas also argued such regulations constitute what is known as commandeering of the states, or when the federal government oversteps its boundaries by pressuring states to pass or not pass laws. Justice Alito joined Justice Thomas in the dissent by arguing that by specifying limited remedies for federal authorities and tasking states with determining the consequences for violations of obligations prior to receiving federal funding, there is a clear division of authority that ensures states retain their historical control over nursing home regulation. Alito wrote, quote, Allowing Section 1983 lawsuits will upset this balance by allowing any plaintiff to demand damages, regardless of the remedial scheme that states establish pursuant to their explicit authority under the Act. End quote. Following the decision in the Tulevsky camp, Shira Waxlag, Senior Director of Legal Advocacy and General Counsel for Advocacy Organization The Ark of Indiana, said to WFYI Indianapolis, quote, this really has broad implications in a whole variety of areas for individuals with disabilities and the people that we serve, end quote. Meanwhile, on the Marion HHC side, a statement from the organization to WFYI read, quote, with the court's definitive answer today that Medicaid-supported nursing home residents have both administrative and federal court remedies for alleged violations, Marion HHC will continue to work to manage those operations safely and effectively and analyze the impact of this court's decision on those public resources, end quote. Our second case, as we move forward in time, is Perez v. Sturgis Public School District, which also concerned civil rights, albeit in the field of special education. The issue at hand, could a deaf student, that being Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, sue for monetary damages under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, if the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, did not allow him to do so, and was he required to exhaust all court appeals. The ADA bars programs which receive federal funding, such as public school districts, from practicing discrimination against individuals with disabilities, while the IDEA Act entitles individuals with disabilities to a FAPE, or free appropriate public education. Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, was denied access to a professional sign language interpreter through 12 years of schooling, and was provided instead with an ineffective one. In that time, Perez's parents were falsely told their son was on his way to graduation, only to receive a certificate of completion in lieu of a diploma upon completing his senior year of high school. After receiving this news, the Perez family filed a lawsuit against both the Michigan Department of Education and the Sturgis School Board on the grounds that both violated the IDEA and ADA Acts. 
However, the Sturgis School District offered a settlement to pay for Perez to attend the Michigan School for the Deaf and compensate the family's legal fees, which would satisfy Perez's lawsuit under the IDEA Act should the family accept, which they did. But then the family filed a lawsuit for monetary damages separately under the ADA, which entitles victims of disability discrimination to pursue legal remedies separately, unlike the IDEA Act, which does not permit such lawsuits. The question, once again, was whether, by accepting the district's settlement, did the Perez family also forfeit their right to further litigation for monetary damages under the ADA, instead of going through the lengthy process of appeals for both claims, a process known in legalese as exhaustion, which is mandated by the IDEA Act, a claim which was echoed by Sturgis District Lawyer Shea Deveretsky. In the Supreme Court arguments held on January 18th of this year, Perez's lawyer, Ramon Martinez, argued that although Perez had settled his claims under the IDEA Act, he could still pursue his claim for monetary damages separately under the ADA. On the other side, Shea Deveretsky cited Section 1415 of the IDEA Act, which contained two features. The first clause was focused on remedies and set forth this following rule, quote, Nothing in IDEA shall be construed to restrict, end quote, the ability to seek remedies under quote, other federal laws protecting the rights of children with disabilities, end quote. This second clause carves out an exception. Before filing a civil action under other federal laws, quote, seeking relief that is also available under IDEA, the procedures under 1415 shall be exhausted, end quote. In a 9 nothing unanimous decision authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch, released on March 21st this year, the Supreme Court ruled that although Perez could not sue for damages under the IDEA Act, he could pursue damages under other federal laws, such as the ADA. In the opinion affirming the decision, Justice Gorsuch referred to a prior case in 1986. In this case, quote, Fry v. Napoleon Public Schools, 1986, the court held that Section 1415 of the IDEA Act's exhaustion requirements do not apply unless the plaintiff seeks relief for the denial of a free and appropriate public education, as that is the only relief IDEA's administrative processes can supply. This case presents an analogous but different question, whether a suit admittedly premised on the past denial of a free and appropriate public education may nonetheless proceed without exhausting IDEA's administrative processes if the remedy a plaintiff seeks is not one IDEA provides. In both cases, the question is whether a plaintiff must exhaust administrative processes under IDEA that cannot supply what he seeks. And here, as in Fry, we answer in the negative, end quote. Therefore, Justice Gorsuch reaffirmed the court's prior rulings wherein a plaintiff does not have to go through the lengthy process of appeals mandated by the IDEA Act unless they are seeking a free, appropriate public education. According to the National Law Review, quote, such a decision could spell trouble for school districts, as it could result in an increase in cases by families seeking monetary damages in contrast to appropriate educational needs for their children, end quote. However, according to Education Weekly, quote, it will make it easier for other students with disabilities and their families to bypass often slow-moving administrative proceedings under the IDEA Act when their chief claim is for damages under other federal laws such as the ADA or the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, end quote. Next time, we continue our special report on the history of special education in the United States by resuming the arc of Washington's efforts towards initial special education law and the first ever such law to be passed in the United States, courtesy of the organization's efforts. Also coming up in the next few weeks, we'll be continuing our coverage of the Lyft v. Westchester Disabled on the Move case, which began last year. 
Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. Up next, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Zeke is one of the extra shy Carolina dogs that the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter has been working hard to socialize. He is most motivated by spray cheese and will take regular meaty treats here and there as well. He has never walked on a leash and finds it extremely scary, so ideally he would live in a home where he has access to a yard for outside time. He has made progress. He now has a collar and can drag a leash while outside. Zeke is not especially playful with other dogs, but he does well with those that respect his nervous demeanor and let him approach on his own. To learn more about Zeke, please reach out to the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, You can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. According to the American Red Cross, heat stroke is a common problem for pets in the warmer weather. Dogs with short noses or snouts, like the boxer or bulldog, are especially prone to heat stroke. Along with overweight pets, those with extremely thick fur coats, or any pet with upper respiratory problems. Some of the signs of heat stroke in pets include heavy panting and an inability to calm down, even when laying down, dark red gum color, fast pulse rate, and an inability to get up. If you suspect your pet has heat stroke, bring them to a veterinarian as soon as possible, as heat stroke can lead to severe organ dysfunction and damage. Fortunately, steps can be taken to prevent heat stroke. For example, never leave your pet out in a hot vehicle, even for a few minutes. The inside temperature of the car can quickly reach 120 degrees, even with the windows cracked open. On hot days, exercise in the early morning or evening hours. If possible, walk your pet in the grass to avoid hot surfaces burning their paws. If your pet is outside, make sure they have access to shade and plenty of cool water. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB. Produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. 
For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 